Welcome back to the Dealmakers Podcast Show with serial entrepreneur Alejandro Cremades, best-selling author of The Art of Startup Fundraising and co-founder at Panthera Advisors. In this podcast, we ask our guests about their successful acquisitions and financing rounds. All righty. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Dealmaker Show. So today we have a very exciting guest. Uh, we're going to be talking about going to both sides of the table, you know, from being a repeated entrepreneur several times, building, scaling, financing, and exiting, now to investing in over 100 companies. You know, very uh, interesting. You know, also the unicorns that they have as well as portfolio companies. But I think that we're going to be learning quite a bit, and we're going to find this very inspiring, I'm sure. So without further ado, let's welcome our guest today, James Tan. Welcome to the show. Thank you very much for the invitation, Ali. So born in Singapore. So uh, give us a little of a walk through memory lane. How was life growing up? Uh, I, I witnessed a lot of changes in the last uh, 30, 40 years. Singapore had really, really changed um, and really leapfrogged uh, many of our uh, neighboring countries. Uh, it's a combination, really, of the hardworking uh, people that we have and then a lot of opportunities that came our way and us capitalizing on it. I mean, no kidding. I think that over the course of time, I mean, Singapore right now, there's a lot of innovation going on in Singapore. So I think that what, what do you think has uh, fueled that? I mean, obviously, you grew up, you know, being part of that, too. Um, Singapore wasn't really in the radar at all uh, 20 years ago as an ecosystem for startups, uh, much less venture capital or any of the uh, tech stuff that we now pretty much take for granted. And so uh, we have really been putting a lot of effort into growing this ecosystem. And so it is done by a in, with a combination of startups, institutes of higher learning like schools, uh, government agencies coming together to remove impediments to growth and to encourage growth also. Corporates coming in with a proof of concept or corporates coming in with their corporate venture funds. And last but not least, the field that I'm currently in risk capital, the angel investors and venture capital firms that are investing. So all these five pieces have to come together. And I'm very proud that uh, Singapore has uh, made these five pieces come together uh, effectively. And so we are now the number one ecosystem in Southeast Asia and easily top five in the entire uh, Asia. Now, one thing, you know, that is very interesting here for you is that, you know, as part of your studies, you did combine uh, not only computer science, but then also the business side of things. You know, I find that those are the best things, you know, and when you are able to find someone that masters both, you know, he can be very dangerous when it comes to business. So wh how, did, how did you come up with the idea or or why did you thought that combining those two, you know, would be a good way to go? I, I would hesitate to say that combining means that we are masters of both. Sometimes it can mean that we are masters of none or we just barely scrape the surface of each one. I think it is important then, as it is now, that uh, computing uh, doesn't function by itself. We need to know what's the market value. And so the business aspect is extremely important. And then from the other side, if you're just a business uh, major or businessman uh, with no technical skill set or operational skill set to really call your own, then I think it's also a scary place to be in. So I think combini combining both, not just computing and, 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 and business, but maybe psychology and economics and so on, you get a mix of two, um, uh, two uh, sectors that can interact with each other and hopefully some sparks come out of it. Now, for you too, I think that um, you travel quite a bit. You know, you were studying. I mean, you went to Australia. You came here to the U.S. You were in Singapore, in China. 
So what do you think that opened up for you in terms of, uh, you know, perspective and way of thinking? Coming from Singapore, the number one thing that really opened up for me was the mindset shift in terms of not just doing something for one city or one country, but really going out and going to a large market. Or if it's disparate markets like Southeast Asia is or Europe is, then wanting or have the mindset to want to go beyond just your comfort zone, your home market, and to go into the bigger region itself. That is the number one uh, mindset shift. Uh, I would say the number two thing is to really be open and um, the trips and the exposure to Silicon Valley and to maybe the overall broader U.S. market were really eye-opening and inspirational. Uh, back then, when you saw the first dot-com boom, and then fast forward to the second dot-com boom, it really was inspirational um, and really resulted in me doing what I'm doing right now. So then, and we'll talk about that in just a little bit, because I mean, that switch, you know, going from one part of the table to the other is quite interesting. But I guess, you know, one thing that, uh, you know, is true is that you dropped out of school. I mean, that's that's pretty unbelievable, especially, you know, like there where the culture is very much about studying and, you know, and and and, and going to a corporate job and, and very conservative in that regard. I'm sure it was not an easy, you know, uh, conversation with your parents. Oh, yeah, it was not an easy conversation I uh, with, with the parents. I will say that uh, for the first 10 years after I did that, uh, it was uh, continuously being harped upon. And uh, you got to bear in mind that I have a pretty reasonable first exit, and uh, <laughs> but it's still up upon. And as an Asian, this is something that I think we have to deal with. Um, I remember when uh, I I uh, left uh, the university, and there was a stack of uh, matriculation cards. Uh, a stack of cards were just so few in the entire university, you know. Not so. Uh, I would like to think back and say that I was courageous, but maybe then there was a mix of just uh bit of maybe optimism plus uh, foolishness that really resulted in me taking that step to say, okay, it's time to tap into the dot-com boom and not miss it. And it was a good step because, I mean, first company, first exit. So what were you guys, you know, doing there with the business? And then at what point, you know, that's, you know, uh, Getty Images, you know, come knocking to uh, get the company acquired? So uh, we are in what we call a two-sided market. So we have something on one side that people want to sell and then someone on the other side wants to buy. And so in uh, creating the marketplace that we did, um, international marketplaces came into Southeast Asia looking at the opportunities in Southeast Asia, the broader region, and say that we want to be here. How do we be here? And we were very nicely positioned at that point in time uh, as an acquisition target for them. So then tell us about that process at all. I mean, what did you learn and, and how, how fast, how quick? And Because, I mean, it was your first exit, your first process, a money process, so I'm sure it was nerve-wracking. It was nerve-wracking. Um, it was also quite a fast process. Um, we started a company during the dot-com boom, but we also sold it during the dot-com bust. So it was, uh, and you you got to remember, remember 25, 20 years ago in Southeast Asia, there was no viable venture capital scene or startup scene. And so to raise capital would have been uh, impossible. And since we are functioning as a marketplace in Southeast Asia, and therefore, if we were to pitch the same story to a European VC or a US VC, chances are they will not understand it anyway. And so we were pretty much on our own. And so it was a pretty quick process, also primarily driven by us, wanting to make sure that we have a good outcome, uh, looking at the the bus that was uh, going on around the world, starting from Silicon Valley. And the second thing that we really, really learned is that we are not equipped 
uh, to scale a company to a super huge size like what we are familiar with today with Uber and the carousels that we have and so on. So we were not. And despite the fact that now uh, we are very comfortable with backing young startups and thinking that they can scale to huge companies, at that point in time, as someone running a startup with no heroes to look up to in this region, and no viable case studies and so on. You know, everything was through PC Magazine, if you recall, CNET. <laughs> there wasn't TechCrunch, inspirational stories like this. We were filling the stones as we crossed the river, as uh, one of our, uh, one of the more famous politicians would call it. So, yeah, it was a learning process. Hey, well, you know, no money raised, you know, all exit, all money for your guys' pocket for the founders. I'm sure that, you know, getting that money, especially since you started this company in your early 20s, felt pretty good. It felt good, but don't forget that we talk about how in the first 10 years uh, of, of my life after I left uh, university, my parents were still hopping on it despite the exit. <laughs> so, hey, well, I, well, I'm sure that they were happy when you invited them for dinner. So uh, let's, 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 let's switch gears here to the next thing, to the next company that you did. So five, five. So how did the idea, because I mean, as they say, once an entrepreneur, always an entrepreneur. So once the transaction happened, then what were the sequence of events that needed to happen for you to to go at it again with 5.5. Five. Yeah, so 5.5 five, uh, is a story that took place in, in China now rather than Singapore. And so the, the learnings from this experience uh, was that I needed really to be in a much larger market, a, la a market that also has a viable uh, ecosystem that support us in terms of risk capital like DC firms. And uh, also I went there because I wanted to study. So I remember the hopping. And so I took a scholarship over and, and went over to uh, Tsinghua University in China and MIT to get my master's. Um, and uh, along the way, found my fellow co-founders who were interested in the two-sided marketplace again. And so uh, with the uh, re-emergence of another dot-com boom in 2009, 2010, and that was when we started Five Five. And what ended up being the business model of Five Five? How were you guys making money? Hmm. So, uh, in short, it started as a Groupon and became a farm to table. So, um, well, it's a long journey over several years before it became uh, what it is. Um, as a marketplace or as a two-sided market, we are doing something that we have been familiar with. Someone wants to sell something on one side. In this case, it's a familiar discounts and so on. And people on the other side wants to buy something. And we provided a platform that went across the whole of China uh, to provide um, yeah, such services to consumers. And also, uh, one thing that is very interesting here, I'm sure that a lot of people are going to be um, wondering because marketplaces, they're not easy. You know, it's like starting two companies at the same time, especially if you have the two-sided, as you were alluding to. You know, a lot of people, you know, they talk about that it's the chicken and the egg, right? And, and, I, and I've been building, you know, marketplaces too in the past. And it's like, you want to you wanna shoot the chicken and step on the egg. You know, that's the frustration that sometimes it creates to build those. Now, I guess in this case for you, you know, how especially for the people that are listening, how did you guys go about the having that liquidity in the marketplace so that people were able to find what they were looking for in a short period of time to really create that retention? I think, I think you're absolutely right in that we are trying to do two things at the same time, building two companies at the same time and then getting frustrated on one or the other. And then also trying to figure out which one will really move the needle and, and create a flywheel effect. So for us, it was really uh, on provision, uh, providing the deals that uh, people really want. Um, so the deal that really kickstarted the whole thing for us was because Avatar, the movie, uh, the first the first movie was uh, launched at the time and everybody wanted to catch it. 
and we managed to get super fantastic deals. And so that really created the, the ball rolling. So at what point do you realize, hey, I think we're into something here? Uh, when uh, when we roll out something uh, like, uh, say, Avatar tickets or something else, and we realized that it was being stepped up within uh, one or two days, sometimes even faster. And then that was the first indication uh, that we are doing something right in the city that we were in, which is Beijing. And then the, we, of course, started to experiment with, you know, there are 400 cities in China. So we started to experiment, experiment with other cities, and we realized that, there were uh, good word of mouth and so on, people familiar with the kind of uh, business model. And that really got the ball rolling in replicating the business model to other cities. And how that's typically like, people talk about this a lot on, on marketplaces, network effects. You know, what, what were the network effects that you guys were seeing? And then also, how do you define a network effect? So for us, really, is uh, whether within the first uh, three months, ideally within the first three weeks, but within the first three months of operation in any city, is it able to pay for itself? Um, so when in expansion, and now from the other side of the table as a VC, while we are advocating fantastic growth and, and going to new cities and new countries, uh, I'm very also very mindful that we also got to control the amount of risk that we goes into expansion. And so the risk that I undertook and that we control at that point in time was about how much do we spend on getting uh, a city ready and so that it functions by itself. There's a flywheel, people are calling in to want to be featured and so on. So for us, timeline basis, it was based on three months. And then cost basis or financial basis, it was based on cost recovery. Can we cover the cost of the people that we're hiring in the city, marketing guy, operational guys, and so on within three months? Um, oftentimes, it took faster than that. Uh, because uh, there were more deals than, than, than we could push out per day. And uh, there's just a lot of people who wants to get a good deal in China. So, so in this case, being ruthless when going against the competition, what can you tell us about that? Yeah, so I, I think entrepreneurs, uh, um, maybe in our part of the world, in Southeast Asia, uh, tend to be more gentlemen and ladylike when they are dealing with uh, um, their fellow competitors. I mean, on stage, and in a environment where it's public, of course, be 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 nice about it. But in the business world, uh, competition is like being on a on the battlefield, and this is a this is a idiom that's been around for a long time, because people tend to forget that if you are not the number one or number two or even number three, then you are pretty much going to lose. And when you lose, it's not just about you losing. The VCs lose whatever they put in, and your staff, your hundreds and thousands or thousands of staff are now wondering why are they out of job and uh, it's totally up to you. So I guess that uh, that brings me to the question of work-life balance. What are your thoughts on that? Uh, work-life balance is uh, something, uh, well, it's important, but I think uh, if you are a founder running a startup, you should, of course, encourage in your employees, but as a founder running a startup, you're, you can only either make things cheaper than your competition, which is generally your large corporates out there, or you do something faster than your competition, again, your large corporates out there. And so they don't work. These large corporations don't work on Saturday and Sunday. They definitely don't work, you know, on 9 to 9 or, or until 9 p.m. or late at night. That's where you can come in and you work harder, you work faster, you work longer hours. and if all everything comes together and you got it right, I think you are definitely in a better position than the corporates that you're trying to disrupt. Hey guys, so pardon the interruption here. So I got to tell you that 
you know, for those of you that are either looking to raise money or you're looking to get your company acquired, you don't have to be alone. You know, there's a lot of psychology that needs to be blended with strategy, with methodology, with process. And it's very hard. And already doing your business alone is super, super difficult. So I remember, you know, back then when I was an entrepreneur, I kept really experiencing the challenge of either knowing or finding the right type of access to the right type of investors or really understanding what was the right type of guidance, you know, that would carry me through the process, whether it was with seeking money or with going through the acquisition. So that gap that I found being an entrepreneur is ultimately what pushed me later on when I met my co-founder at Pantera, Mike Sieversen, to really put together an advisory firm where we are guiding entrepreneurs and founding teams through the capital raising efforts, whether you are at a seed stage or at a series A stage, or if you are going through the process of an acquisition and you are in small to mid cap type of um, a cycle. So again, you know, we would help you from guiding you and, and supporting you from A to C all the way to the end as an extension of your team. And there's no reason for you to do this alone. So with that being said, if you would like to find out more, feel free to send me an email at alejandro at panteraadvisors.com. And we would love to take a look at helping you out. And what was that uh, What was that process of capitalizing the business? Because obviously with this company, it was a little bit later uh, on, and I'm sure that the ecosystem was a little bit more developed. Uh, so what was that way of uh, capitalizing the business prior to taking the company public? Uh, we were, the system ecosystem was definitely much, much, much more mature. And being in China itself, it was definitely much more mature in terms of venture capital funding and also private equity funding. So all our funding rounds were uh, venture capital uh, before we took it uh, public on Nasdaq. And, and how much capital did you guys raise prior to the IPO? We raised about 40 million um, uh, in total. Okay, and then and then why did you decide that it was time to take the company public, and especially in Nasdaq, you know, being in China? So um, Nasdaq is the mecca for tech companies around the world, and uh, for Chinese companies with uh, foreign capital, uh, the logical places to uh, go public would be the U.S. markets or markets like Hong Kong and even Singapore, and so it was very natural for us to consider Nasdaq uh, as an option because it's a mecca and because of uh, foreign capital. Uh, in terms of why we decided to take it public at that point in time, I think many people fail to, or many entrepreneurs fail to understand that there is a window of opportunity when your, your, the industry that you're in and the company that you're doing can be well understood and well covered by the market at large, the analysts and the you know, Joe public who buys the, the equity of your company. And once you miss that, it's going to be a tough sell because now you're up against the new trend. So if anyone going public right now would have to deal with, uh, say, the upcoming trend of AI. And so that window, uh, entrepreneurs are strongly encouraged to under understand where the window is and to, uh, well, have an exit event uh, during the window. So I guess, you know, the uh, we, we were talking about it earlier too on fundraising. What is that mentality of no one owes you anything when going through the fundraising process? I, when I was in China, um, and I'm a Singaporean by birth, so I, when I went to China, there were some, or actually many of the VC funds there were run by Singaporeans and Hong Kongers and so on. 
And so uh, one thing that really struck me was that it doesn't matter whether you're from the same country or same hometown, your business must work at the maximum that the guy or the lady from the same hometown will take a courtesy meeting. But otherwise, everything is still back to how good your company is, how good your team is, and so on. So really, no one owes you a living. And so when we are now on the other side of the table looking at deals, and whether they are from Philippines or whether they are from Malaysia, it doesn't matter whether they are from the same hometown. The business must work. So, so, so in this case, you know, for you, I mean, it sounds like the company was doing pretty well. You know, at its peak, it was a, a five hundred million valuation, which is incredible. Uh, but eventually, you know, like you, you, you really start to think, you know, about something else, you know, which is getting to the other side of the table and and really making investments. I mean, you you made some angel investments, but one thing led to the next, and then all of a sudden, you know, you're here you know, leading Quest Ventures, which is the venture firm that uh, that you started. So how did the idea come about? Uh, and yeah, and, and, and what are you guys doing with Quest Ventures? So Quest Ventures uh, started also in Beijing. Uh, it was during the time of Five Five when we were going out to do merger and acquisitions to also do roll-ups into Five Five, And so it was used pretty much as a vehicle for that. And uh, when we went outside of China, uh, it was a model that did, really didn't work as an operating company trying to use a VC firm to do acquisitions because there's no roll-up to be done. And so Quest Ventures really function as a normal VC firm outside of uh, China itself. And today I'm based in Singapore using this uh, same vehicle uh, to do investments. And we're lucky to have had the backing of uh, sovereign wealth funds into our main uh, VC funds and along the way several other VC funds uh, to invest into the potential of this region. How much money do you guys now have under management? We have close to um, about 80 million. I hope uh, we will pass that very soon. Um, it's across uh, three funds. And you said 80, 80 million, eight zero? Yes. Okay, 80 million. Okay, got it. Now, in this case, you know, for you guys, uh, what's the, um, you know, how, how did you develop an investment thesis for the, for the operation? Um, our thesis uh, has stayed the same in the last 10 years where something must, uh, within Southeast Asia itself, the companies that we look at must have the three following uh, characteristics. And the characteristics are scalability. So the first thing is, uh, can it, if it can work in a place like Singapore, uh, can it grow from $1 million to, say, $10 million? And, uh, if, you know, and if the second one will be replicability. So can this same thing from Singapore be taken over to another place like Kuala Lumpur or Manila and, and do the same thing, $1 to $10 million? And how many of such cities are there? Because it doesn't make sense to just have it as Singapore and Kuala Lumpur and that's it. It needs to be beyond just these uh, few uh, first-tier cities. So that's replicability if we can take it to other cities. And last but not least, the large internet community. And so while this last sentence sounds like isn't everybody on the internet nowadays, 10 years ago, it wasn't the case. 10 years ago, we were looking at, can Xiaomi come and uh, deploy or sell more cheap uh, Android phones? So 10 years ago, there was that. Um, today, we are less concerned about the pervasiveness of the internet and availability of people you know, getting on the internet. Uh, now, we are more concerned about their ability to spend and how what do they want to spend on. So this thesis has uh, more or less uh, uh, guided us uh, in the last 10 years. And how many investments have you guys done today? We have done about uh, 100 plus uh, investments. How many unicorns out of those? Uh, we have four unicorns out of them. Um, so pretty proud of the results. But it's also really because uh, we were early in the game. 
uh, think I would like to think that we understand this uh, this region well enough. And so even until today, my passion really lies in the early stage companies and the founders coming to meet us rather than the late stage B and C and D uh, kind of firms that come and meet. Because the early stage kind of firms, which we back 10 years ago, 8 years ago and so on, are not today unicorns. And well, the challenge is always in us and the kick and the excitement is really in us to can we find the next unicorn you know, in 8 years time, 10 years time. I mean, out of a hundred, you know, plus investments for unicorns, it's a pretty good uh, hit batting batting average. So I guess for finding, for being able to identify those unicorns early on. I mean, now that you have four, right? And 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 I mean, it's not like one. I mean, once you're lucky, as they say, twice you're good. So when you have four, I'm sure that you've been able to see a pattern, you know, with within all these founders that they had, or the market, or the way that they were going about things. What were those three, you know, perhaps top three ingredients that you saw repeating on those four unicorn companies? Okay. Um, well, I've been following your show. So a lot of it actually is uh, similar to what your um, all your other guests are, are, are talking about. So number one is the team itself. Uh, but the team is uh, pointless unless I define what the team does, the ruthlessness, the desire to get things done no matter what comes. And so whether it's against competition, against regulations, so that they can get their job done. And uh, being in Southeast Asia or even Asia itself, you can imagine this, uh, especially the one uh, going against uh, existing uh, bureaucracy or regulation is something that is tough to do. And so the tenacity, really what we boil down to ruthlessness to get things done. Then the third one would be really just work hard. Um, the founders that uh, we have back that are consistent, that, 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 that the, the unicorns are consistently those guys who at uh, they are working hard at five a.m. or they are still pinging at one two a.m. and so on. I don't I don't advocate that you sleep late and so on. I'm sure they sleep their six hours and eight hours. It's just that every available minute, you know, they are thinking about how to make their business better because it translates to. Can can they provide a better working environment, a better company for their com- for their employees who trust them and follow them? So, team, ruthlessness, and really just being hardworking. Amazing. Well, hey, I guess for many founders that are going to be listening, that are going to be, you know, uh, excited about the idea of pitching you, you know, maybe an idea for them to is to schedule the email the emails to send automatically at one a.m. <laughs> There we go. There we go. A good tip there, guys. Now, now, one thing here, you know, obviously on the on the uh, other side of the table, being a VC, uh, it's it's much harder to raise money than raising money for your own company. Why is that the case? Um, for a VC firm, um, yeah, the I think the the mentality uh, is definitely not that of a startup founder where you are trying to raise funds every eighteen months or so. And uh, if you fail, then, you know, you fail as a founder. But for a VC firm, uh, we need to raise funding um, that lasts for 10 years. So you can imagine investors or LPs into us have to lock in for 10 years. And they are pretty much trusting that for the next foreseeable future, three to five years of active investments, that Quest Ventures can spot the right things. Because uh, it's pretty much a blind pool that they will imagine that you have to, you have to identify the right thesis or have the right thesis. I have a potential pipeline of maybe not even the next three years, but maybe just the next one year. And then you'll do the same good job again for the second and third year and fourth year and fifth year and so on. So it's much harder. 
And uh, for investors to keep coming back and say, I'll support your second fund, I'll support your third fund and so on. These are necessarily entities or people with deep pockets. And so the usual angel investors or high net worth individuals usually don't cut it beyond the second or third funds that we run. And so we are blessed that we are supported by fairly large institutional investors and sovereign wealth funds. And and one thing there that you're alluding to is that you know, the deal flow side on the pipeline, you know, those those LPs, those limited partners that are typically investing in your in your guys' funds, they're looking for for an advantage when it comes to that pipeline of deal flow. I mean, that pipeline that is going to give you access to these unicorns that nobody else is going to gain access to. I mean, how do you guys think about pipeline and creating those channels so that you're able to gain access to those deals before anyone else? Hmm. Um, after having been in this business for 10 years, I, uh, the best uh, companies really come from referrals. There's referrals mostly from fellow um, entrepreneurs, less so from VC firms, although they are as important. And then the last, obviously, will be cold emails. So the, on the entrepreneur side, uh, I'm very, very proud to say that uh, whether the founder has failed or has succeeded with us in the last 10 years, we are still in touch in some way. And we do uh, community events to continue to engage our entire ecosystem of founders, hundreds and hundreds of them, not just in Singapore, but in, you know, in Jakarta, in, in, in Philippines, in Malaysia, in Vietnam, and so on, so that they are continually plugged in uh, to what we do. And you know, when they, if they fail, um, and they start the next thing, uh, I'm very proud to say that so far we have also been able to support them in their next journey. Uh, because the departures have somehow also been quite amicable. And then, uh, of course, when people talk to them and new entrepreneurs talk to them, uh, the referrals come our way. So that's, that's a very, very important source with us. And remember, I go back to the, you, you um, go back to my passion area, which is engaging with uh, young founders. And so, uh, even as we are all growing old, and then you remember that we all grew old together, that kind of connections and memories is just not, not possible to find if you are, you know, one um, brand new fund coming in. So I think we have a natural advantage there just because we are early in this, uh, uh, what is pretty much the world's fastest growing uh, region. And imagine you were to go to sleep tonight, James, and, uh, and you wake up in a world where the vision of Quest Ventures is fully realized. What does that world look like? Wow. Okay. Um, so VCs in uh, this part of the world is pretty young. If you look at uh, established companies like Sokoa, they are 50 years old. Uh, I don't intend to work 50 years before we become what is what is a pretty much a household name where entrepreneurs are concerned. Uh, I think currently we are uh, as household as you can get in some key markets in Southeast Asia. Um, we are also as household name as you can get in parts of Central Asia. So my idea will be we are household name for sure in these two big regions. And then uh, hopefully we are also somewhat household names in the other potential regions that we want to expand into. So then so then I guess, you know, obviously now different experiences that you've had, multiple companies that you've started, um, multiple companies that you have invested in, tons of unicorns as well that you've seen. If you had the opportunity of going back in time, James, and I put you into this time machine and you're able to go back in time to that moment where you were dropping out from school and you were having that tough chat with your parents. And let's say you were able to have a chat with your younger self and you were able to give that younger self 
one piece of advice before launching a business? What would that be and why, given what you know now? Do it earlier. <laughs> Drop out <laughs> earlier. Do the thing earlier. Raise funding earlier. Yeah. Don't have the distraction or something else. In my case, the distraction was uh, studying. <laughs> it was a distraction. So just focus on it. And uh, perhaps you have been a much bigger outcome. I love it. Well, James, for the people that are listening, especially for the founders that would love to pitch you, what is the best way for them to reach out and say hi? Uh, we are contactable on our website, www.questventures.com, or you can uh, email me, james.tan at questventures.com. Amazing. Easy enough. Well, hey, James, thank you so much for being on the Dealmaker Show today. It has been an honor to have you with us. Thank you, Ali. Thank you. If you like the show, make sure that you hit that subscribe button. If you could leave a review as well, that would be fantastic. And if you got any value, either from this episode or from the show itself, share it with a friend. Perhaps they also appreciate it. So also remember that if you need any help, whether it is with your fundraising efforts or with selling your business, you can reach me at alejandro at pantheraadvisors.com. You've reached the end of another episode of the Dealmakers podcast. For free resources and materials, head over to alejandrocremades.com. Thank you for listening and see you at the next episode.